0: I don't know how it is in your in your spiritual walk, in your road to heaven, but every once in a while I get a theme in my mind, a topic in my mind, and I, I can't get it out, so I study about it and I think about it, and I've been thinking a lot here recently about <clears throat> salvation. That's been on my heart for a while, for some time now, and I want to understand things more clearly, or, or try to understand things more fully, Like like, why did God come here and take on flesh and bones and blood just to turn around and allow men to murder Him and to execute Him. I want to come to grips with why God blesses me. Every day He blesses me, yet I'm a sinner. I'm constantly doing something to turn my back on Him. Why does He continue to bless me? I think about these things and a lot more things. And I may not know all the answers, but one thing I'm I'm sure of, I'm crystal clear about, God wants me saved. In spite of myself, God wants me saved. Notice these passages. Ecclesiastes chapter 18 and verse 32 states, I have no pleasure in the death of him who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn yourselves and live. Find me and seek me and live, God is saying through Ezekiel. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants everybody saved. He wants everybody to see this truth and to be saved. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. He said, the Lord is not willing That any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, around verse 37, says that him who comes to me, I will certainly not cast away. God wants us saved. He wants us with him for eternity. And we think about things like, God wants me saved. And I understand that. And God proved. by providing a Savior. Hold on to Psalm 27, but would you go to Romans chapter 5 with me just for a second? Romans chapter 5. This is a passage I go to quite a bit, and I'm sure you do too. It's very familiar. But I know God wants me saved. And I know God provided this Savior. In Romans chapter 5, let's begin reading in verse 6. God's word says, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his Son. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. God wants us to be saved. And God has provided a means for us to be saved. That is through His Son, Jesus of Nazareth. No, I can't answer a lot of the deep theological questions of the world, even of our religion. I study about them. I try to come to grips with them. But I can't answer them all. But one thing I'm sure of. And one thing you can be sure of God loves me. And God loves you. And He is worthy of our trust and our confidence in Him. Now, before we go any further, would you bow with me in prayer? Holy and righteous Heavenly Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the salvation that comes through Him and Him alone. Thank You, Father, that because of the sacrifice of love You made and Your Son fulfilled, we have the hope and the promise of a life everlasting. Thank You, Father, that through Him, All our sins can be forgiven, we can be one, and we can be with you. Thank you, you cared enough to save us, and thank you, Father, for for providing a Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. And Father, I pray this in his name, amen. Good morning! Good to see everybody, it's beautiful outside, and we're going to talk about salvation. That makes me smile, that makes me happy, and it should make you too. When we look at this passage this morning, if you go back to Psalm 27 to begin with, we see some things that David talks about in that Psalm. And I appreciate Christian reading that in those eleven verses. He did a great job. We're going to look at two passages from God's Word this morning. From Psalm twenty seven, then we're going to skip on over to, to the New Testament that I think see some parallels from a passage. But I want us to talk about some things such as when we read this psalm, David is has a lot of confidence in God, and he's showing that confidence. He's showing a lot of trust in the Lord. We can see a real focus in his life to serve God. And he's dedicated. He's making a dedication to the Lord to live for him. We can be sure that God leaves nothing to chance. And has provided everything we need for salvation. So let's first look at David's thoughts in this psalm, the 27th psalm. And when you read this particular psalm, again, David is absolute about his confidence, that he can have confidence and put his trust in the Lord, that God can be trusted. So as soon as we begin reading in Psalm 27, you see there's a certain confidence in God that David puts in him. He says that God is his light. You know, God is our light, too. Have you ever been into a dark room? I'm in a real dark room where you can't see. Sort of your skin starts crawling, I and mean, you can't see anything in front of you. I've gone to some of these haunted houses sometimes and you can't see anything and you, you get a certain apprehension, uh, uh, certain nervousness, certain fear, even though we know it's just human beings, it's not real monsters in there. Y'all do know that, right? They're not real monsters in there. It's it's human beings, but still it gives me the creeps. Somebody slaps you in the leg or does something like that. There's a little fear there. But what if somebody just turns on all the lights? It's like, oh, that's Jeff McVeigh. I'd be scared of him. Oh, that's this person. You know, it's illuminated. I see what the fear was and there was no fear. It was in my mind. Well, equate that to the light God provides. We all enter dark times in our lives. It may be fear. It may be Disappointment. It may be a hesitation about things. But if we really trust and put our faith in God, He illuminates these dark places. No, they may not go away immediately. But God is still there. And we can deal with these dark times and dark places a whole lot better when we allow God's light to shine forth. So David had confidence that God was his light. Also that God is his salvation. And God is our salvation too. This means that David was confident that God could and would deliver him, rescue him from any situation. David believed that God was his deliverer, his rescuer. God is the same for us. God is our deliverer. God is our rescuer. He gave us Jesus to deliver us from sin. He rescued us from Satan. And we can be confident that God wants us saved, per the verses that we just began with. David is also confident in his strength, that God is his strength. And God is our strength also. God, again, enhanced David's confidence by being a strong defense for him, even giving him a refuge sometimes. We know the songs that they sang about David. Saul's killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. We also know that David had to retreat sometimes. He had to run for his life. But either way, in any circumstance, God was his strength. God provided. And God is the same for us. Sometimes we have great victories in the Lord. I'm sure you've done the same thing. You've... You may be having a conversation with a buddy and you're getting like a, a scriptural um, debate, argument, conversation and then you remember a verse. And it's like, oh Lord, thank you for help, allow me to remember that verse. And it really lit up the passage in the scripture and God. And God was living through you so he could be glorified. And that's a great victory for the Lord through us. But there's sometimes also that we might need to retreat to a Bible study, personal Bible study, to private prayer. You know, that's God giving us His strength when we do those things. So like David, that God was His light, God was His salvation, God was His strength. So just like David, we can also ask these rhetorical questions. Whom do we need to fear? Of whom do we need to be afraid? Rhetorical because the question is obvious. Nobody. If God's light in the way, if God is my sa- Savior, if God is my strength, I don't have to fear a human. I don't have to fear anything. But we go on and we see in this Psalm where God is also David's defense. And He's our defense too. You look at passages like verse 4 to verse 5. You know, whether it was individuals, <clears throat> wicked individuals, or even an army, or even an all-out war, David didn't have to fear. Excuse me. We look at David's own personal experience in this, how God was his defense. David slew animals, wild beasts. David killed the giant Philistine Goliath. David was also hunted by Saul. Nations rose up against David, but God always provided A defense. He'll do the same for us. God's promise. God has already provided us a great defense. He's given us evidence. Ample evidence. To prove that God exists. That He exists. That that Jesus is His Son. Really is His Son. God has made provisions for us to talk to Him anytime we want. Because Jesus is our mediator. The Holy Spirit is our mediator. We can talk to God and God knows exactly what we're trying to say. God made sure that we can have a proper defense as He had everything written down for us via the Holy Spirit to defend His honor. To defend His Son's honor. To defend the honor of His Son's bride. God has given us this defense. You know, as Paul told the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's another rhetorical question. Nobody. That's the answer. Nobody can be. So God, David had great confidence in God, in his life, salvation, and strength, and defense. But there's something else, too, as you read these passages. David was focused. His focus was on God. David had a singular focus. Notice he says that he wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord. He wanted to behold The beauty of the Lord. He wanted to meditate in the temple of the Lord. That's a great focus that he had. And by this focus, David come to know light. God's light. To know God's salvation. To know God's strength. David's focus lifted him above his enemies. God placed David on a very solid footing if David followed him. Strong foundation. And David understood that. David knew God was going to protect him. David knew God was going to provide for him. In a startling passage, at least to me, it should open our eyes as parents. In verse 10, David said, When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord would take care of me. God forbid as parents we'd ever do that. But David understood, even if that happened, we don't have any evidence it did. As a matter of fact, we have evidence that there was a strong bond there. But David said, even if that did happen, God's still there. If my family leaves me, God is still there. God still provides. And David rejoiced over this. It made him happy, it made him glad. Look at verse 6. Back up to verse 6. He says, Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. David got it. He understood if he if he was focused on the Lord, everything was going to be turn out will turn out okay. David's focus kept him from getting spiritually lazy. Look at verse eleven. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path. Teach me your ways. David understood he can never let his guard down. It might be in public school. As public school teachers, the outside world maybe sees where they're teaching to a test. Maybe, maybe not. I'm teaching for the kids to learn. I guarantee every other teacher in here does the same thing. For the kids to learn and to grow and to progress forward. David's saying, teach me your way, O Lord. I can never stay the status quo. I need to keep growing. And David understood that continuing to learn and grow was vital to staying confident and not losing this focus. Nothing is any different for us when we think about that. We need to have focus. We should want to be with each other, be with the saints. We should want to behold the beauty of the Lord, whether it's the beauty that we can see every day or the beauty of the Lord at the footstool of his throne someday. We should want to be with the Lord. Someday We should make sure that we are placing ourselves on solid footing that God provides. We should make sure we do not get spiritually lazy. As we look at what David is saying and the confidence that he had that God was going to be his light, going to be his salvation, was going to be his strength, was going to be his defense. And God, David showed us how to focus on that. And everything else would be provided. God will protect. God will provide. Now let's look at what I think is maybe a parallel passage to this. Would you turn in the New Testament to Titus chapter 2? Titus chapter 2. And again, as you look at this passage that, that, that Paul writes to Titus, we're going to see some of the same themes, at least to me. As David was talking about in his psalm, the 27th psalm. Some similar parallels. In Titus chapter 2, I want to begin reading in verse 11. Paul wrote, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust." We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works." That's really, as commentators call that's a theological statement. Paul's just talking about, you know, Titus talked to the older men, talked to the older women, talked to the younger men, and the younger women, and talked to the bondservants. Then he says, for the grace of God has appeared to all men. And he stops and talks about this very important topic of salvation. Grace... Is one of the most beautiful and important parts of God's plan of salvation. I remember as a little boy growing up at Armstrong that had a sign up right above the pulpit that had the uh, quote steps, the plan of salvation. And it was truth and it was scriptural. We have to have to be to be pleasing to the Lord, we have to have faith. We have to believe that He is a rewarder, that He is real. We had to be willing to have a penitent heart. We had to be willing to repent. That's scripture. Jesus said, unless you repent, you're going to perish. Jesus himself taught, you've got to confess me. You can't be ashamed of me. If you're not going to confess me here on this earth, don't expect me to confess you before my Father. We had to be baptized. Jesus gave us that example. Jesus said to do it. The apostles taught the same thing. You have to live faithfully to receive the crown of life. So that's all truth, and that's right. But shouldn't grace be the first thing on that list? You think about grace. We could never be saved unless God first showed grace. It's impossible to be saved unless God first said, Okay, here is the gift. Here is the means by which you can be saved the free gift of grace which is my son Jesus of Nazareth. We could never be safe unless God continued to show grace. After we do become a Christian, what if God after we became a Christian, what if we sinned right after we became a Christian and we do sin and if I say I don't sin and if you say you don't sin, what's the scripture say about that? We're liars. After I became a Christian and then I sinned, what if God just struck me dead right then? But He doesn't because of grace. He continues to give us grace. God's grace brought salvation down to man. And that salvation has appeared to all men. Commentators are, it's hard to get a a concrete, objective thought on that because I read like three or four commentaries for this lesson. It's hard when you read a passage like has appeared to all men and the commentators are like not quite sure what it's talking about because has it appeared to literally all men? Has every human being on the planet heard about Jesus? Probably not. So here's what I think it means. When it says that salvation has come down to all men, appeared to all men, mean when the time was right, God sent a Savior savior to mankind. One of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. Matter of fact, hold on to Titus and let's go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, please. Read about an old guy who is seeing salvation that's come and appeared to mankind. The man's name is Simeon. Jesus is just a baby. Arguably about 40 days old. A little over a month old. And they're at the temple. Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. And notice this passage. This is an awesome passage. In Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 25. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, this is beautiful, he took him up in his arms, all of us picked up a baby, Simeon took up baby Jesus and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon got to see that before he died. He said, "Now, Lord, I can die a happy man. Because I've seen the salvation you're bringing it to the Gentiles, you're bringing it to your own people. I'm holding it. Thank you, Lord. So salvation has come to all men. This grace of God is none other than Jesus. And this grace teaches us, as you read the passage, uh, teaching us that it teaches us things. It teaches us not to fall into the trap of ungodliness and worldliness. You know, David talked about how God had lifted him up above his enemies. Well, this is our enemies, to live ungodly lives, to live as part of the world. Yes, we live in the world, but to live as part of the world. There are so many passages that talks about the danger of us losing our focus and slipping right back in and holding hands with the world. You know these passages Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26 states, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, that's a rhetorical question. What are you going? To, your soul lives forever. Are you going to exchange it for missing services? Are you going to exchange it for pride? Are you going to exchange it for any other thing that can keep us from God? I hope not. I hope I don't. James chapter 4 verse 4. James asks, do you, know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity with God. What is that? Well, that next sentence clarifies what it is. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the, this grace of God teaches us not to fall prey to ungodliness and worldliness. But to live soberly, righteously, godly. There's our focus. You know, David had a focus back in Psalm 27. There's our focus to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Thinking right, talking right, doing right. He says, in this present age, I get to teach some really cool things actually at school. Um, I just taught a unit on religions. The kids got a big kick out of it. Um, Spent about a month on Christianity, about two or three days on the other ones. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I spent more time on that one. But we we talked about the five major religions. All right? So most of the kids are from a Christian background, of course. had one Muslim young lady who asked me a lot of questions, by the way. Um, So that's a cool thing. But we talked about Hinduism and Buddhism reincarnation is a big part of that. Hinduism has the cycle of life, you know, born, live, die, born, live, die, till you finally get all the karma right. Then you break out and you form with moksha, whatever moksha is. Buddhism talks about sort of the same thing, but you've got this, you've got to try to reach nirvana, you've got to follow the four noble truths and the eightfold path, and you reach nirvana, blah, blah, blah. Reincarnated until you get it right. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. Now that's what God says. That's what the Scriptures say. There are no second chances once we leave this life. So we will stay focused and live soberly, righteously, and godly now. In this present age, there's no do-overs. Also, this grace of God. Teaches us to be confident. If you look at verse 13 again. Titus chapter 2. There's some great promises that God has given us. And we can be confident in the promised hope. This blessed hope that Titus is talking about. We can be confident that Jesus is coming back. That's, that's things we can take to the bank, if you will. You can be confident in these things. Well, there's an implication stated here in verse 11 that we are to have a confident outlook for His coming back. <laughs> if you can see my notes right now, I have in capital letters, asterisks, in bold print, serious point. And this is a very serious Paul has asked us to live soberly. I mean, really think about what you're doing here. I want to ask you some questions concerning verse 11. And I've asked myself, I told you I've been, I've been thinking about these things. I've been struggling with them. Maybe you are too. But let me ask you these questions and you answer to yourself yes or no. Are you looking forward to the return of Jesus? Is the return of Jesus something you are longing for? You can't wait. As Paul said, Lord, or John said in the Revelation, come, Lord Jesus. As Paul stated, I'm ready to go. I'd rather go. Is the return of Jesus going to be a glorious appearing for you and me? Is it going to be a glorious appearing? That's some things to really think logically, rationally, and soberly about. He's telling them in verse 11, God is, Jesus is teaching us, this grace is teaching us to look forward to that moment when He does come back. It's also teaching us to understand the sacrifice that was made for us. There's our dedication, to be dedicated to the Lord. If the Lord wills, this coming Friday, approximately about 60 of us are going to be arriving at High Lake Christian Camp for the 13th annual Spring Youth Retreat. Thirteen years. Man, I can't believe it. It's been, we had that many of those. Thirteen of them. Our theme is passion. And it centers around the emphasis on, the main point is to examine, if you will, the passion that Jesus had to give himself over to be betrayed to be spit on, to be hit, to be mocked, to be humiliated, to be crucified. You look at this passage. This grace of God teaches us He gave Himself for us. Jesus gave Himself. He gave Himself. He put Himself on that cross. He could have saved Himself, but He didn't. It's as if He became a murderer. It's as if He became a thief. It's as if He became an adulterer. It's as if He became a liar. I'm not speaking blasphemy. Jesus is none of those things. But when He was on that cross crying out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He was taking the sins of murderers and adulterers and liars and thieves and all other sinners. Jesus gave Himself for me And for you to redeem us, to make us his own special people, to make us workers for him and with him. We think about David's great trust that he had in God. And he had confidence that God was his like. God was there for his salvation. God was there for his strength. And he trusted in God. And that led him to stay focused and to stay sharp. When we read a passage like Titus, it really should make us think and make us ask questions about our salvation. Such as, am I ignoring the grace of God? He gave me a free gift. Am I spitting at it? Am I turning it down? Am I turning my back on the salvation that can forgive my sins? That can take care of my sins? Am I living for the world? Or am I living for God? Am I really longing for the day that Jesus returns? Is that something I can't wait for? Can we say again like John said, Lord, come on, I'm ready. Am I redeemed? Have I been bought back? Am I living a pure life? Am I a part of His special people? Am I still zealous for going out and doing His work? Every day? We've got to answer these questions. They're eternal, life-changing questions. And of course, the invitation to you this morning, if you're answering no to just one of these, let's take care of that this morning as we stand and sing.